The Holy Gospel according to John, the 18th chapter. Pilate entered the headquarters again, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you ask this on your own, or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, Well, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said, what is truth? The gospel of the Lord. I invite the congregation to be seated. So as, as you may have heard today, today is Christ the King Sunday. And in Sunday school this morning, we had what I thought was a really interesting discussion. We, we talked about how this is, a, this is on, you know, called Christ the King Sunday. It's also called Reign of Christ Sunday. But I also heard something new this week that I'd never heard before, that this has at various times been called Judgment Sunday. And, and you know, I hear the word judgment, and, and I don't know about y'all, but all of a sudden I start to get a little bit twitchy. Because when I hear the word judgment, I don't necessarily hear it as a positive thing, because think of the times we use the word judgment. We use the word judgment when a criminal is before a judge, and the judge issues a judgment. You know, similar to when a jury issues a verdict, right? We, we hear the word judgment when, a lot of times when I was a kid, my father put the word bad in front of it when it was related to my behavior, bad judgment, right? Or he was lamenting the fact that I didn't have better judgment or even good judgment. You know, we also hear judgment sometimes in the same way that we might hear the word repent. And another thing we talk, see, if you weren't in Sunday school class this morning, you just missed so many things. But another thing that we, that we talked about, though, is this word repent. A lot of times when I think of the word repent, I think about seeing the guy with a sign that says repent in, in letters that are tinged with fire. And it's, you know, that cartoonish image of, you know, all the people who God hates. And it lists, I don't know, at least 30 or 40 things. And either that sign is designed to make you see something that exists in yourself. Or I think the other thing that sign is designed to do is if you don't see something of your own up there, then it really begins to lead you into worrying, well, maybe there's something of mine inside me in my heart that belongs up there. And all of a sudden, the word repent becomes a word that comes with baggage. And I think in our culture, as, as we listen to the way a lot of people in our culture talk about God, listen to the way a lot of people in our culture talk about Jesus, listen to the way a lot of people in our culture talk about what it means to be a Christian, they did, they've done... You might be aware that occasionally they do research studies and ask people for their opinions about things. Well, over the last several years, if you're either someone who's interested in church kind of as an institution, or you're somebody who works in the church as like a pastor or a deacon, then we have seen study after study after study after study talking about things related to the church. And most of them have those kind of clickbait, gotcha headlines that that draw you in and make you want to say, well, what's wrong with us now? You know, things like church attendance continues to drop. Or, or things like that, that tell us that most of society, when they think of the word Christian, they don't necessarily think of G. 
Christ. But they think of some of the negative images of Christianity where people are prejudiced, where people don't like certain types of people. They think about the negative aspects that come out of Christians who are well-intentioned, but believe that they know who it is God has determined is in or God has determined is out. And one of the ways I saw this highlighted was this week I watched the Mr. Rogers documentary. Anybody in here seen the Mr. Rogers documentary? It's very good. You know, I grew up with, with Fred Rogers telling me that I'm special the way I am. It was very nice. And some of y'all may have also grown up with that, or, or are familiar with Mr. Rogers at least. And when he died, there were protesters outside his funeral who were angry about the fact that when he said that he thinks that we're supposed to love everybody, he really did his level best to love everybody. And so when I talk about people thinking, you know, Christians have prejudice, this is the image that people have in their heads a lot of time according to some research. And on the one hand, you know, I, I read these things and I see these things and over and over and over and over again. And, and it makes me sad to know that there, there's an organization that I'm a part of, a family I'm a part of, that, that people think these things about me belonging there. And, and there's a piece of me that, that becomes really frustrated by that because that's not been my experience of the church. My experience of the church is not this sinners in the hands of an angry God, Jonathan Edwards kind of hellfire and brimstone, you know, repentance or damnation kind of understanding of what it means to be a part of the church, we in the Lutheran church don't talk about God as being this eternal angry guy. You know, one of the things that I hear in the way some of the, the more popular branches of Christianity talk about God, you know, it makes me think that really, how can God love us when God hates us so much? You know, we, we hear the story of, of the God who wants so much to save the world. But somehow, even though God is the creator of the universe and is all-powerful and knows everything, is just absolutely incapable of doing anything to save us unless we make a decision, right? We've all heard this. It was the Billy Graham crusade that made the decision for Jesus. And we, we've become, in our culture, kind of convinced that our whole faith kind of wraps up into this one moment of decision where we either decide to follow Jesus, no turning back, or... Somehow we, we miss the boat, and God's powerless to help us. And not only that, but God's kind of angry at us for missing it. And God is going to punish us forever for not doing it. And if there were any other relationship in our lives, any other relationship in our lives, where, where the choice was go along, you get along, or else know that you're going to be punished eternally, do you think that we'd say stay in that relationship? You know, any other relationship in the world, We'd say that's a bully. We'd say that's abusive. But somehow when it's God, it's okay. That's what our culture tells us. This is the message that I think when people think of Christianity, I think this is the message that they get. And some of it's wrapped up in who we are as, as people who grow up in America. You know, I, I am not saying America is bad. America's fine. I like being American. There's a lot of things I like about being American. And, I grew up in the American culture. I'm a product of America. I also recognize growing up in this culture that there are things in our culture that aren't necessarily healthy. You know, one of the things I noticed that isn't necessarily healthy is the idea that somehow 
because I'm so industrious, I'm so smart, and not me, but like people in general, are so good looking that these things can get us ahead. And because I'm, I'm smart and I'm talented, I have pulled myself up by my bootstraps, even though most of us haven't ever seen a bootstrap, know what it looks like. And I have, I have come to earn everything that I have by myself with no help from anyone else. And, and I grew up in the 80s where like we had the Lone Ranger on TV and you know the Lone Ranger might have had a sidekick Tonto, but you know the Lone Ranger was really the one who you were there to see. He was doing everything by himself and coming in to save the day, or like Batman or Superman. You know, we we are this kind of mythic group of human beings that somehow doesn't need anybody because everything is all about my talent. But you know, no matter how much of a self-made person you are, no matter how talented you are. No matter how singularly brilliant you are, no matter how competent you are, no, no matter how lucky you are, none of us got to where we are by ourselves. Because first of all, we had a family to raise us up. You know, second of all, sometime during our childhood at least, and, and some of us as adults become a little bristly and grumbly, and so we may not have any friends as adults, but at least during our childhood, we had people we spent time with that we called classmates, right? And here we are in church where we have been baptized into this community of faith and we get this family forever. And one of the values that we have in church is that we don't do anything by ourselves, but we have not only the people who are here in this building with us, but we have the whole communion of saints who has come before us and raised us up into faith in the family of God where water is thicker than blood and who stands with us even in those moments where we feel alone. If you're a Christian by God, you haven't gotten here by yourself. But even knowing this, there's still this image that I'm good. And that's why I have what I have. And it's no wonder that in this culture that lifts up the power of the individual that lifts up the narrative of the one who was working in a shop in their garage and all of a sudden a, a company just appeared around them and they've got this great wild success. You know, it's, it's no wonder that this culture is conceived of a false god who then loves us by hating us. It's no wonder people think of this false god and thinks, think that's what's true of Christianity. One of the things we talked about in Sunday school this morning was uh, an idea. What would it look like if the God who loves us has a love that looks like love? You know, it's such a simple thing, isn't it? What does love look like? We hear from Paul, love is patient, love is kind, love bears all things, believes all things, hope all, hopes all things. Love never ends. You know, everything on earth, tongues cease. And one day the world might stop spinning. And everything that has flesh eventually will die. It's one of the truths we experience as human beings. But the love of God endures forever. What would it look like if we as the church proclaimed this message as loudly and as faithfully and as ardently and as strongly as those people who carry the signs to take the word of pen and turn it into a threat? What would it look like for those of us who worship the God who loves us 
who believe maybe love can look like love. Reclaim words like repent. Because repent's not really a negative word. Repent is a word not necessarily of judgment. Repent is a word of relationship. All repent means is turn away from the bad and turn toward God's good. You know, turn away from those things that separate us. Turn toward the things that God calls us to that unite us. Turn away from our selfishness and turn toward the family that God has given us in baptism. Turn away from my confidence and, and my smarts and the things that I do that make me so good and turn toward the ways in which those things that I have that are good are also a product of the family who has loved me, both my physical earthly family and the family that God has given me through baptism. You know, I don't know if you can tell. My wife can tell the first time she met me. I'm not from here. I'm, I'm from a place where South Carolina, Carolinians often call off. And uh, I was born in Orlando, Florida. So not only do you have to cross a bridge or a dam or a river to get there, you have to cross whole state lines. And so I'm, I'm from really far away. And, you know, coming here when I was six years old from Florida, we didn't have family around. I had an aunt who lived, have an aunt who lives here. But we didn't come here because of that. We, we came here because the, the housing market was good. Dad built houses. And uh, so I didn't really have grandparents around me when I was growing up. I didn't have a lot of aunts and uncles around me when I was growing up. And my aunt who did live here, lived here, she worked all the time. She was a nurse. You know, she wasn't around a whole lot either. So we... We didn't have the extended family like what we have in this congregation. But my congregation, where I grew up, Christus Victor and Harbison, those people became my, my other brothers and my sisters in addition to my brother that I have. You know, those people became my aunts and my uncles. Those people became my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And I love them every bit as much as I love my family. And, and those people are every bit as much a part of the story of who I am as a human being as the members of my birth family are. You know, we, what if we, who believe in this God, who calls us out of that individualism that separates us from everybody else and calls us through the waters of baptism to turn toward the hope that we are not alone, what if we lived the gospel in a way that promoted this value that we have as a part of our family? The family that we have through Jesus Christ. Because isn't that the backside of this individuality that we that we in America always kind of cling to? The backside of individuality, the front side is our strength. But the backside is isolation. The backside is loneliness. The backside is fear. The backside is separation from all those things that really matter in life. The, the back end of this individuality is not something that calls us into life and hope and the promise of things that are better because of who God has given us. But the backside of that individuality is the fear that maybe in those dark moments when I see that thing in my heart that I just can't reconcile and I'm afraid that nobody can ever love me because that thing is there, the dark piece of my individuality is that when I am alone, I believe it's true and that this is the truth about me. And maybe, maybe, it's no wonder in a culture where we so highly value this, this idea that I've done this all by myself, 
we become a people who turns God from love into God, whose primary mission is to punish. Because when we're alone, isn't it part of the quiet of that voice inside us that tells us the worst things we fear are true? And maybe that's why we become a culture that's so obsessed with death and so obsessed with youth. Because if we're afraid we're alone, if, if we're afraid that there's nobody who can understand us because there's no one like us, then doesn't that mean that those parts of our heart that are not only lonely but also hurting and broken because we all have those people who we love and we have lost and we miss. Because we all carry griefs in our heart that we don't know how to reconcile. Whether it's the grief of a death or a grief of a diagnosis or a grief of a missed opportunity or a grief of whatever it is we carry in our hearts that we just can't let go of, that we don't think anyone else can understand because I'm supposed to do it by myself. What would it look like if we followed the God who calls us to repent of that? And instead, hear the word of life and truth and forgiveness that comes from the true God who does exist, who loves the world, and who because of that sends us a king. A king who does not follow the example of other kings. A king who does not follow the example of our presidents, whoever they might be. A, a king who does not follow the example that the world gives, but instead teach us, teaches us a new, a new understanding, a new definition, a new way of relating to power. That power is that thing that we give away because it does not belong to us. And in giving away that power, we also give away the power that things have over us because we trust in our true king who calls us to the truth that we are not alone. That's not up to me. That there is a power that is greater than I am. That there is a love that looks like love and hears that litany of fear and anger that I speak to myself and calls me into a new opportunity to hear another truth of myself that we hear in baptism. Child of God, Sealed by the Holy Spirit, marked by the Christ, cross of Christ forever. Given a new name, given a new place, given a new family, given a new hope, given a new reality that no matter what I fear, I am not alone. And God is in fact not angry at me, but God loves me. What do we do when we believe this? when we have a king who calls us into this reality, how does that change the way we treat people? We share that love. We share that love. Mm -hmm. how, does that, how does that change the way we treat the people who don't agree with us? Whether it's political, or whether it's social, or whether it's that family member who we just can't stop arguing with because we've been doing it all our lives and we don't know how to do anything different. You know? How does that, how does that change it? What? We become more tolerant of yeah. others, even though they don't say what we, or don't think what we think. And, yeah. yeah. It's, it would be a world of peace and God's love flowing everywhere. And, and you hear how that imagination Not touches the heart. Not militant Christians. Mm -hmm. That's militant Christianity, what you're talking about, mm -hmm. that this society has become. Yeah. 
And, and I think what, what this form of Christianity that we're, we're thinking about is, is a wound in our heart, mm. right? Mm -hmm. A very big one. Yeah. And, and when we take seriously <coughs> that the God of love is a God of love, do you feel how that healing begins? When I hear the truth that I need to hear, that that litany of fear, that that litany of self-doubt and self-hate isn't the truth about me. And I begin to take the chance that maybe it's not true of other people as well. When Christ is our king, we have an opportunity to learn the values of the kingdom that we pray for every week. When we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for a new reality. We're praying for a new nation. We're praying for a new religion. We're praying for a restoration of the presence of God in a way that God has been present since the garden, but that is coming through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What would it look like to be citizens of this kingdom and to follow this kingdom? So as we go out this week and we look at the world around us, we recognize that we live in two realities. We live first in the reality in which we experience the brokenness of the world, and sometimes we see it played out on live television in front of us. We live also in the reality that God's kingdom is not only coming, but through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ this year. And this makes a difference. How this week, when you go out from this place, Will you be able to live your life in a way that declares that Christ is your king? Amen. Amen.